Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. The 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China is set to feature the usual displays of military hardware, martial music, and Xi Jinping shouting "Hello, comrades!" to goose-stepping troops. But is this time different? Today, we're asking whether we're back in a new Cold War with Big Bad China replacing the Big Bad Soviet Union of yesteryear. On the U.S. side, the rhetoric has been steadily ramping up, with the president talking of a divorce from China. Cold War era bodies such as the Committee on the Present Danger have been revived, and we even have Steve Bannon producing Claws of the Red Dragon, a movie which features a company called Hua Xing. Here's a trailer from the film. I'm told that Jane Lee is a girlfriend.、Uh, we've been together for a while. It would be unfortunate if a few articles published in a Canadian newspaper were to cause such innocent people any difficulties. This is a democracy. Reporters write the truth. Editors allow that truth to be published. The legal system operates without interference. Full stop. Jane, these are serious people, and they know everything about you and your family. Hello. 什么？什么时候？为什么？ Today we're joined by the University of Sydney's Charles Edo, who, under the Obama administration, advised on political and security issues in the Asia Pacific region. We're also joined again by the Lowy Institute's Richard McGregor, author of many key texts on China, including Xi Jinping: The Backlash, which has just come out, and The Party: The Ultimate Insider's Guide to How the CCP Works. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Let's start with you, Charles.、Um, are we in a new Cold War?、Uh, well. We are not in a new Cold War if we think it's going to look exactly like the last one looked like, because situations are not analogous.、Uh, the how closely intertwined the economies are,、um, the global presence already、uh, that China has,、uh, that makes it not like the last Cold War.、Uh, however, the the term of art that is now being used, as opposed to Cold War, is great power competition or strategic competition, and there are elements of the Clash, the competition, the struggle、uh, between China and the United States that will look an awful lot like、uh, the last Cold War. Whether or not we're talking in uh, military uh, terms, if we're talking in economic terms, if we're talking about diplomatic and military,、uh, diplomatic and political terms, and really even in ideological terms as well. So it's not a perfect analogy, but if we begin to look at The increasing number of domains, no less technology, where the struggle is taking place, it does look fairly comprehensive at this point. I mean, Richard, the word decoupling is is in vogue. I was going to say back in vogue, but I think we can just say in vogue. Is it possible to have another Cold War between two such closely intertwined economies? How do you unpick them? Is is that possible? As the president suggesting, can you really have a divorce? Well. Not really, and I think, as Charles intimated, that's the the key difference here. And it's not just about how the two countries' economies are intertwined, and that's when you get to decoupling, when you attempt to unravel that intertwining. I think the key difference in this respect is the size of the Chinese economy. 
you know, I've, I've looked at this recently and we had many different measures of the Soviet economy and there was a lot of debate about their accuracy. But I think it's certainly true that the Soviet economy was never a match in size or dynamism for the US economy. It never got close, but nonetheless, the Soviets were able to compete uh, in many different military domains around the world. Now, China is different. China's economy, um, in all likelihood, will be bigger in the future from the US. So that makes China an altogether more formidable competitor. And so then are you able to compete against China or perhaps um, weaken China a little bit through what we call decoupling? I think there are two kinds of decoupling. There's the loose sense in the way that uh, Mr. Trump talks about it, that is sort of like bring everything home, lock, stock and barrel. And then there's a more targeted decoupling, which is making sure you have certain uh, capabilities, uh, manufacturing techniques, technologies and so forth out of China. So China doesn't have leverage over you uh, by virtue of the fact that they have them inside their country. Now, I think that's doable, but it's difficult because the whole East Asian post-war economic miracle embedded in that is this logistical supply chain through Japan, South Korea, both US allies, Taiwan, uh, an important US partner, parts of Southeast Asia like Singapore, most of all going back through China. So you've got to be very careful because you've got to not just uh, have decoupling, you've got to think about your allies as well. But we're also hearing about this economic slowdown within China. I mean, how much of a drag do you think that will be on China's ambitions? Well, I think that's the $64 million question. You know, we've got multiple slowdowns in China and a couple of them around the world, including in the US as well. But let's just look at China because I think the economy is the key in many respects. We've got a natural slowing down. Um, you know, no country grows at double digits forever, China included. We've got a deleveraging process, a deliberate engineered uh, slow down by the Chinese authorities in an attempt to prize debt out of the system and st or stop the, the debt bomb from exploding. And now we've got a third source of stress for the Chinese economy, which is the, the US-China trade war. Now, it, it's very difficult, uh, partly because the Chinese system is opaque and the Chinese are so good at reforcing that opacity, uh, it's very difficult to get a, you know, a really clear picture of what's happening with the Chinese economy. But I think it is pretty sharply slowing and they've got a big dilemma to the extent which they add more debt, if you like, you know, re-stimulate the economy uh, to cope with the sort of current uh, US-China uh, travails. So I, I think we have to wait, frankly, and this is not on anybody's time horizon, a couple more years to see how well they've done. And of course, that's when the demographic time bomb comes in. The size of the working population starts to fall dramatically, and that's another big stress as well. And Charles, on the political front, to what extent do you think China has overreached? Uh, we're seeing all this unrest on the peripheries, in particular uh, problems in Xinjiang, where up to more than a million people are now being held in re-education centres. And here in Hong Kong, where I am, where we're now seeing, you know, what amounts to a kind of weekend insurgency. How much do you think these are a threat now to Xi Jinping's ambitions? I'm happy to take a first stab at this, but Richard's just obviously written a terrific book all about and predicated on this question. Uh, but let me, uh, let me give one answer and then I'm sure Richard will correct me. Uh, so in terms of uh, your question, 
how much has uh, Xi overreached? Uh, well, we've seen that his ambitious plans, uh, be it BRI, uh, be it in Xinjiang, I'm using it agnostically here, have started generating a fair amount of consternation, concern, and even threat levels rising. Uh, we've also seen, and this I think goes back several years, that China is seen increasingly by multiple actors as a player, an international player, whose word cannot be trusted, uh, whether that's with the uh, one country, two systems model in Hong Kong, whether that's with uh, Xi's promises to President Obama in the Rose Garden of the White House that they would not militarize the South China Sea, uh, whether or not that was the promises that they would cease from cyber intrusions uh, into the United States and elsewhere, which of course paused for a moment and now is back up, or whether or not they would liberalize their economy. So uh, I think what you're seeing, I know you got more specific uh, talking about Xinjiang first and then Hong Kong, but it is Chinese actions that have created the sense of concern from other states, which has begun to align and shift uh, the politics in different countries. Now, it's shifted them differently in different countries. So whereas you've seen, I think, a really strong backlash uh, in the United States, you've seen a pretty strong set of policy responses coming out of Canberra, coming out of Tokyo, uh, they become a little bit more muted when you get to Southeast Asian nations, for instance. So what we've seen is, uh, in my read, not a shift in Chinese objectives, but a shift in the aggressiveness with which they go about them. And that has generated a growing sense of concern, although differing levels of threat perception, which then changes how different nations are willing to take action. Now, obviously, uh, Richard Charles tried to pass that one on to you, um, but could you maybe have a go at answering it, but also um, maybe get to the question of, of why do you think Xi Jinping has, has overreached? If, if this is overreached, why has he done so? Well, of course, I should first say that I would never correct Charles. I would only build on what he said. <laughs> um, but I think there's, let's, let's, without being too sort of pedantic about it, let's unpick some of the terms there. Uh, I mean, first of all, as Charles said, I don't think Chinese objectives have changed, just their ability to sort of pursue them has. In other words, under Xi Jinping, yes, certainly he's a bold, decisive leader, but he's also in charge of a much richer uh, country, more powerful country, and a country with a much more capable military. So, you know, the timeline, if you like, has just been speeded up. But to come back to those terms, we've got, you know, overreach and backlash. There's no doubt, I think it's pretty obvious overseas that there's a backlash against China. You can go through it country by country and for different triggers. Australia, where we are now, we've been having a debate for some two, three years about how to manage China. The US, the biggest and most important of all, even with the chaos uh, at the top with Mr Trump, the system across the board is pretty galvanised. Canada is having its wake-up call with the Huawei issue. Uh, Germany is having a big debate. That's maybe the key swing state and, and so forth. Now, whether that's overreach uh, is, uh, you know, something we're, we're yet to find out because China doesn't seem terribly chastened by this backlash. And let me just give you one example. I've just spent the week in Taiwan uh, Chinese tactics towards Taiwan, including a speech by Xi Jinping in January this year, have really helped 
the current government ahead of next January's presidential elections. In other words, the political party that China likes the least. But as far as I can see, and a lot of people in Taiwan said this, China doesn't really have much of a calculation for the internal politics of Taiwan. They're just pressing ahead with their agenda, uh, come what may. Now, there's a backlash. Uh, it'll only be e uh, overreach if China actually switches course. And I don't really see any sign of that in a fundamental sense at the moment. In your book, you, you do spend a lot of time on the domestic backlash to Xi Jinping. Uh, I mean, how is that going these days? Has that sort of died down in the context of the trade war, in the context of these external enemies as the party portrays them? Well, I think it's a little bit further underground. And I also think that a lot of people in China have sort of run out of patience with Mr. Trump. I don't think the sources of discontent have gone away. The people who are angry at Xi Jinping of appointing himself leader indefinitely, that hasn't gone away. There are still many critics of his economic management, um, except we're in a new phase these days. But I think it's a little bit muffled right now because when you're in a full-on confrontation with the US across many domains, uh, and that's been made worse by the uh, collapse of the trade talks in May, I think you get a bit of a rally round the flag moment, particularly ahead of the 70th anniversary of the PRC. So if you're a critic of Xi Jinping, it's not a great time to be sticking your head up above the parapet and yelling your grievances. I think we have to wait a little while before that bubbles to the surface again. And both of you, I mean, how much do you think this 70th anniversary is being used by the party as this kind of rallying point? I know that a white paper on China's role in the world has, has literally just been issued, but I didn't haven't yet had time to read it. I wondered if either of you knew if there's anything substantively new in it. I also have not read it. Charles, Charles, you were reading it for me, I think. Uh, yes, but I haven't yet got all the way through it. Um, uh, the one thing, though, that I note, just to kind of shift that a little bit uh, as a punt, because we haven't yet done our homework, Louisa, um, is... One of the things that I've noticed kind of in the uh, press statements in the run up to the anniversary is, uh, and I'd be curious uh, for all of your uh, two cents on this too, is that while China might not be chastened at all, uh, the language has modified just a little bit uh, because of the backlash uh, to BRI, uh, maybe to Xinjiang, maybe to what's happening in Hong Kong. I have noticed in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, an increasing stress um, on uh, the history of development uh, and lifting uh, millions of people out of poverty as the key achievement of the People's Republic of China and less pronounced discussion of national rejuvenation or China's central place, although we'll get plenty of that with the military parade. But I just it strikes me as just watching uh, the statements, reading the tea leaves, that there's been some subtle re-messaging uh, to mitigate uh, what I imagine would be seen as the harmful backlash that they've received. I, I, I'll add something there. I think it's true that on top of that, over the last year, because of this backlash, there's been some sort of, uh, and I would say at, this, at the moment, kind of tactical retreat on some issues, the most important being the China 2025 roadmap for a technological upgrading of the Chinese economy so that it actually becomes dominant in a number of key sectors that are now perhaps dominated by Germany, South Korea, Japan, and perhaps the US. 
So I think there's been a modification of the language, but really long-term objectives. I don't think there's been a big change there yet. And I'm glad, uh, Richard, that you talked about that uh, just now because it gave me a chance to Google really quickly the uh, white paper. (laughs) And it does um, actually back up uh, and underscore what you've just said, that uh, the key lines that I'm seeing uh, in Xinhua and uh, other ways are the main front of China's role in the world is all about development, all about development opportunities for the world, and all about what China is contributing to development which again, uh, is a recalibration of the message, I would say. Both of you talked about a tactical retreat, but what happens when it comes to Hong Kong? Is it possible, do you think, for Xi Jinping to retreat any further than he has on the sort of five demands from the Hong Kong protest movement at this stage? Or knowing what you know about him, do you think this is something that is just going to escalate and escalate? I think the best description I heard about how China would handle the protests in Hong Kong is, you know, let the protesters eat themselves. In other words, step back a little bit from it, pull back on the notion of any, you know, physical intervention by China itself through the People's Armed Police and the like. Make sure that it remains a Hong Kong issue and thus responsibility for it remains with Hong Kong. And I guess, you know, wait the movement out Uh, And in waiting, the process of waiting the movement out, you'll see a lot of arrests, more people jailed, more physical violence, potentially. It doesn't necessarily make it go away, but it perhaps, uh, you know, reduces uh, its impact. Um, But as far as I can see, that doesn't really solve the problem. Hong Kongers don't become more patriotic. They don't uh, want to be part of China any more than they want at the moment, which seems to be very little. Uh, and the resentment just builds and it comes, you know, we had the umbrella movement in 2014, I think it was. We've got the current uh, protests now. And China, I don't think, seems to be willing to make any um, genuine compromises. I'll just finish on one point. I think one of the big problems, of course, is we're all critical of Carrie Lam, uh, the Hong Kong chief executive, and rightly so. But one of the big problems is that whomever she is replaced with, that's not a circuit breaker because China, in my mind, simply won't uh, allow Hong Kong to be led by anybody who's anything but a cipher for themselves. And unless you get some genuine autonomy, then the problems that the protesters have raised can't be addressed. If you don't mind, i just add in one point about why I find this is such a delicate and searing issue uh, for Beijing. Uh, It's because of the argument that has been made implicitly and explicitly of the Chinese model. Uh, we were just talking about the development uh, notes that they're hitting, uh, maybe as a recalibration, but this is central, right? That the alternative model uh, that the PRC is touting to the world on a global stage is that prosperity and development um, are more important than political uh, independence and liberty. And that countries and people are willing to subordinate their political rights to grow rich and develop first. That is the essence in many ways of the Chinese model that they're offering to the rest of the world. And Hong Kong and the actions that have occurred and rolled out, at least as I read them over the last several months, puts lie to that issue, uh, that people are not willing to subordinate all rights simply based on the promise of prosperity. So this is an issue, as Richard said, that is not going away. The underlining structural drivers and antagonisms are there, but it's also one, and this is why it's so sensitive, because it strikes at the core of what the Chinese Communist Party 
has put out as its model to the world. So, Richard, I mean, this really reminds me of one thing from your book, just to, to take another step back from this, this this sort of more confident autocratic trend. And you write in your book that it wasn't just Western analysts who got Xi Jinping wrong. Uh, it was also the party elders who chose him precisely because he acceptable to both Shanghai and the Youth League faction, that he was pliable and that he, quote, lacked a power base. I mean, did they get him wrong or is what we see with this autocratic trend just a continuation of what we saw in Hu Jintao's second term? With, with Xi Jinping, there's both continuity and disruption. Yeah, we were talking a little earlier about uh, how China's objectives haven't changed, but their means to implement them have. And in a similar way, I think on top of that continuity in objectives, uh, there's a large amount of disruption in Xi Jinping as well, particularly internally in the way that he's shaken up the party and the anti-corruption campaign and the like. I guess uh, when we get to the issue of, of you know, uh, who got Xi Jinping wrong, certainly the West misjudged him very early on. But I think if you go back and look at the record in China itself, and of course, in China, you know, there's always an element of speculation. But when Xi Jinping was nominated as the designated successor in 2007, five years before he took over the leadership of the Communist Party, nobody, to my mind back then, and I was still living in China then, sort of said, oh, my God, we're going to have a new leader who's just going to tip the place upside down. Uh, we all remember at the time that Xi Jinping was the compromise candidate. All the big families found him acceptable. Uh, he wasn't tightly associated with the sort of the large factions which dominated the, the Politburo. Um, so in that respect, I'm not so sure people knew what they were getting when they, they chose him either. So I don't know whether that simply makes him an enigmatic figure or she himself changed a lot uh, as leader in waiting for five years because of what he saw as the sort of crumbling of the pillars of power of part of the party because of anti-corruption, because of corruption and the like. Charles, I wanted to ask you a question about US policy towards China. I mean, we've just seen this new national security advisor who's Matt Pottinger, former China reporter and a China expert. I mean, do you think that will lead to change? Do we know what Matt Pottinger's ideology is like and, and can he last in the job? So a couple of things to say on that. So first of all, uh, Matt Pottinger is not uh, the new national security advisor, although by the time this podcast airs, he might very well be, given the longevity of U.S. national security advisors. He's been <laughs> elevated. He was senior director for the past two plus years on Asia, uh, and he's just been elevated to become deputy national security advisor. And do we know uh, what his take is, what his vantage point is? Uh, I think the answer is yes. And there are two things uh, of note here. Uh, so the first is there is no argument to be had that Trump is not erratic all over the place, focused on Asia and great power competition, maybe once every month or so. But the second point is below the level of the president at the policy level, there are a suite of policies that have shifted into place, first coming from the strategic documents uh, that the United States lays out for the way that's going to align itself, uh, our version of our white papers that's in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. Uh, and all of these have been fairly consistent during the Trump administration. Uh, and I believe uh, Matt's had a hand in all of these because he's been on the National Security Council the entire time that America now sees China, China and Russia, as 
its two major competitors and American strategy, uh, American force structure, American investments are all going to shift accordingly. Uh, and that means that that's a signal to the bureaucracy that for the past 18 years, fighting terrorism, uh, being involved in the Middle East, has been the primary national security focus for the United States. That is no longer the case. And again, sometimes you need some blunt words to kind of whack the bureaucracy on the head to get them to begin to shift not only what they do, but also what they buy. More specifically uh, for Matt uh, and how he is aligned, you know, there's a fascinating moment when uh, Matt, who, as you noted, was a journalist uh, in China a long time ago for The Wall Street Journal, before he became a U.S. Marine, before he went into the think tank world and the investment world, before he joined the Trump administration. And that all is to say uh, that you have uh, a lot of characters, uh, jokers, uh, amateurs in this administration, and Matt's not one of them. He's a real professional uh, who has the respect of basically everyone uh, that I know in and outside of government, and that's true on both the Republican and the Democratic side. And interestingly, and you can look this up on a YouTube, he showed up about, oh, I think this was probably maybe six to eight months ago uh, at the Chinese embassy in Washington, uh, D.C., and gave a public toast. And we in the Trump administration have updated our China policy to bring the, the concept of competition to the forefront. Uh, it's right there at the top of the president's national security strategy. And this has been cause for much, much discussion in Washington and from what I hear also in China. Uh, but to us, this was really an example of what Confucius called rectification of names. Uh, in the Analects, Confucius said that Ming Bu Zhang, Ze Yan Bu Shun. If names cannot be correct, then language is not in accordance with the truth of things. And if language is not in accordance with the truth of things, affairs cannot be carried on to success. And of course, I think it's evident to everyone that the United States and China are engaging at some level in competition. To avoid acknowledgement of this fact would be to court misunderstanding uh, and to invite miscalculation. But I think we know exactly uh, where Matt sits in trying to align U.S. strategy to become more competitive across any number of different domains. And now in that new role as Deputy National Security Advisor, which is a coordinating role, but also a shaping role for the U.S. government in terms of its policy, he'll have even more ability to harness uh, kind of the powers of the various bureaus and agencies across the U.S. government to affect that end. Could I just add something on Matt, whom I knew as a journalist in China? We, the first thing is that he's obviously a remarkable office politician. Um, he came into the National Security Council with Mike Flynn, uh, who left soon after in disgrace, and he survived all the other changes since then. Uh, it also probably means he's doing a pretty good job, um, both within the NSC and also in managing Mr Trump. He's probably considered from the outside these days somewhat as a hawk on China, but I, I personally don't see that myself. I think he's a very solid uh, mainstream thinker on China, and having had the ability to work at the coalface in China, he, he, he has a, a very solid understanding of the system and a very unsentimental view of it. And I think you can see that reflected in the kinds of policies uh, that he's pushed. I mean, on the other side, you know, what's your sense of, of Chinese officials? I mean, are, are they still completely bemused by Trump or, or do they think that they've worked him out or, or indeed have they worked him out? 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go on that first. I, I, I really think that Trump initially, his kind of bull in the China shop, uh, no, no pun intended, approach initially quite destabilised the Chinese. They thought they had his measure. They thought a bit of flattery and a few big headline purchases of US goods would basically put him away. Uh, once the tariffs started kicking in, I don't think they really knew how to handle him. Um, I think that's changed now. I think they've realised, and I'd say not without justification, that it's kind of pointless negotiating with Trump because he'll always come back for something else two weeks later when he wakes up on the wrong side of the bed or wants to get the issue back in the game. And so I think having tried to engage with him now, they're kind of, in a way, disengaging uh, and not looking to make any kind of big trade deal. The question is, how long will that approach last at the Chinese end? In other words, how much pain can they absorb? And if Trump doesn't win re-election, and I know nobody really knows what's going to happen there, that approach won't work with an incoming president. Um, my, my take is uh, remain fairly consistent, uh, that the possibility of a trade deal is decent, maybe better than decent, and that will probably increase as we get closer uh, to the U.S. presidential election, because it makes sense uh, for Trump to hold up a victory and claim that he's won on all fronts. Uh, however, a trade deal uh, will be temporary at best and won't resolve any of the underlying issues, as I think uh, the Chinese have continued to signal that they are unwilling to make any structural shifts uh, that have been the cause of the irritant, at least from the American side. So again, I think that the probability of a pause at some point, uh, again, or the purchase of more U.S. Uh, farm stuffs uh, or potentially even energy would be announced the closer we get to the election. Uh, but that ability to fundamentally halt the trade war, which is not just a trade war, right? I mean, trade war is proxy for a competition that is spilling out across multiple areas. That's not going back in the box. Uh, and I don't think uh, even... The entire U.S. government is, I think, kind of revved up around this, but it's broader than just the U.S. government. It's into American society at this point. So I think that that's something that won't go back in the box. And even if Trump claims, um, and I think there is political incentive for him to claim some kind of victory uh, and some kind of pain alleviation on farmers, on people in the American Rust Belt who have supported him, it will be temporary at best and will, in fact, might even allow the competition to spill out even more forcibly into other domains. And Richard, do you want to elaborate? In your book, you talk about this slightly schizophrenic approach that on the one hand, Trump is bullying US companies to pull their production lines out of China. And at the same time, he's pushing for greater market access to China, which would, of course, tie the two economies much closer together. I mean, does this approach um, e even make sense? I guess there's nothing new under the sun for Trump to be pursuing a, a contradictory policy, as you say, on the one hand, saying get out of China, on the other hand, saying to China, we want more access. I guess you can justify it in this respect, you know, going back to the issue of decoupling. Uh, if you can have a sort of scalpel-like decoupling, and, you know, where um, I'm not so sure we can, but if you can have a sort of you know, finely targeted decoupling and get certain things out of China which affect uh, the national security of the US and other Western nations, um, you know, preserve the kind of technologies uh, you want uh, and continue to have an otherwise normal trading and investment relationship with China. Perhaps that's possible. Certainly, you know, the US business community 
has become quite disillusioned with China over the years. They're no longer the barrackers for China they once were, but that does not mean that the China market uh, is not still incredibly important. Uh, it's still the sort of, you know, uh, fastest growing market in terms of consumer power, uh, industrial purchases and the like. And if you're a big American or Japanese or European multinational, you still want to be in China to take advantage of that growth. So in some respects, uh, any policy, I think, has to try uh, to, to recognise that. From your last answer, Charles, um, where you talked about competition spilling over into other areas. Do you think they'll be able to keep a lid on that competition or are we now in in a territory where we might start to see armed skirmishes somewhere? Is there a danger of that? Uh, so let, let me unpack that a little bit, uh, Louisa, because I think uh, that for a long time, if we looked at U.S. actions in the South China Sea, for instance, from 2012 uh, to 2016, the word on the street out here in Australia, but also around the region is where is the U.S. and why are you not doing more to more forcibly push back uh, against uh, China and Chinese actions here? And again, if you read the pushback necessarily spirals the escalation and brings you closer to war, then, of course, uh, two nuclear powers, you would never want any pushback to occur because you would never want there to be the prospect of nuclear engagement. Um, however, if you read the facts of the case differently, where pushback uh, by the United States, no less by other powers, doesn't necessarily lead to spirals of escalation, but rather leads to spirals of deterrence, uh, which is, in fact, how I do read the situation. If you look at various efforts to push back against Chinese aggressions by the United States, uh, and by Vietnam in certain cases, by South Korea uh, with the case of economic coercion, uh, then you can see more stability. I mean, when I zoom out to the you know, most grandiose level uh, possible, uh, I would say that the situation, the future that we're heading to is not one that any of us would welcome because it's one that will be increasingly tense and increasingly fraught. But it's also one where the possibility of war, I don't think, is going to grow unless the United States and other powers do not push back at all. Uh, I know that might sound counterintuitive, but it's my belief that when the U.S. does not push back, then Beijing sees a permissive environment to keep doing what it has been doing. And that's when you get into a situation where inadvertently they actually do trip over a real red line that demands a response. So I think we're in a more tense situation, but I don't necessarily think that means that there's a heightened chance of war, but it's all predicated on how far China is willing to push it and what the United States and others are willing to do to push back. I'm struck by both of you, from both of your work, this sort of sense that this external pressure um, becomes an opportunity. I mean, Charles, you wrote that Chinese officials will constantly be tempted to channel internal discontent outward to manufacture legitimacy by pursuing a nationalistic foreign policy and to place antagonism with the democratic world as a core tenet of its beliefs. And, and Richard, you wrote something quite similar when you said um, China's domestic insecurity feeds rather than restrains its desire to assert itself overseas. I mean, so in some ways, does it even matter what U.S. foreign policy is if external aggression provides a, an opportunity, if you like, um, domestically for China? 
Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. I kind of agree with what Charles said that you know, in areas where that there's been pushback, then China takes notice of that and is deterred, if only uh, 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 temporarily. I think we have to sort of consider the situation five or maybe maybe even ten years down the road, when China might see much more value in not being deterred or might feel powerful enough, uh, might feel it has a military capable enough of pushing back itself against US deterrence. And of course, we see the areas where China is not deterred, the Philippines being the classic one, where China, of course, wants to do a a joint venture 60-40, 50-50 with the Philippines in resource extraction off the Philippine coast in areas which are absolutely part of the Philippines, um, you know, exclusive economic zone. So if they can take that or get something there, they will. Whether China ends up later on lashing out in a far more sort of risky fashion, uh, particularly on Taiwan, which I think is the big one, I think that's entirely possible. And, and the problem is that the internal logic of the Chinese political system, you know, in the long run, if it sticks on its current path, pushes them in that direction. If I, if I may, I, I'd throw in two points uh, on top of that. The first is there's actually very little because, Graham, your question was, does it matter what U.S. policy is? Uh, and to a certain extent, I'd say no, uh, because there's literally nothing uh, that America could do to convince the CCP leadership that its presence is stabilizing and its intentions are benign. Uh, that's point one. Uh, point two uh, kind of hits at what Richard was saying, that I actually do think what U.S. policy is is very important here uh, for the internal calculations of Beijing, because I read uh, that Chinese policy is not autistic, as we've read in some works, but rather pretty rational and exceedingly opportunistic. So it might not shift uh, their objectives one bit. But whether or not you read the environment that you're in as permissive or not, whether or not you think it's worth a roll of the iron dice is all predicated on what you think the likely reaction is going to be. And if you think that the United States is going to turn away from this, uh, if it's less interested in this, if it's got a sclerotic set of policy decisions, then that increases the chance that you're willing to roll the dice. However, if you see a more firm set of policies, if you see credibility uh, demonstrated not only by words, but actually by the U.S. putting its money where its mouth is, both in terms of its capabilities, military we're talking, but also its long-term bets, uh, then that's a different set of calculations that you're going to make when you are deciding whether or not you want to take action, not only in the South China Sea, but also on something like Taiwan. In a recent essay, Robert Kagan argued that everywhere is enjoying what he called a springtime for strongmen, with these odious autocrats from Hungary to North Korea to Saudi Arabia being fainted by the US president. And in his essay, Kagan argues that autocracy has been succeeding because it is just as natural to humans as democracy and that they yearn for the security that comes from family, tribe and nation. Do either of you agree with this rather bleak assessment? I think there is an element of truth in what Bob has written about in terms of this is a struggle, and it's a struggle that's persisted throughout human history. Uh, The second point is I think it's a really powerful element that he's brought out because if we've looked at kind of the relative balance around the world between democratic states 
loosely defined, and autocratic states, the balance has shifted and shifted markedly over the last 10 years. So there was a democratic flourishing uh, really starting in the 1970s through about 2003, where you had the, nu the number of democracies in the world growing. But there's really been not only a backlash, but a decline uh, and a democratic deficit uh, that we're in over the past 12 or 13 years. And I think that's been growing, and that's a major muscle movement in kind of world politics uh, at this point. Uh, third and final thing I'd say on this is when he points to someone like Trump, I think he's entirely right to point to someone like Trump because this is one area where Trump just falls down completely uh, because not understanding, as Richard's already said, that democratic values, uh, the protection of human rights, uh, harnessing this in other societies is kind of a secret sauce that America has. And when it moves away from that, not only is it antithetical to American values, but it's actually bad strategy uh, because you are necessarily taking away some of the attractive power that America has had. So I want to ask a final question to both of you, um, 70th anniversary question. So I just saw that uh, the author Gordon Chang, who in 2001 wrote The Coming Collapse of China, is now saying Hong Kong will bring down the Communist Party. Do you agree or will we be back here in 10 years having a similar conversation to the one we've just had? I would say, given Gordon's track record and, and my own views, I think you know, you'd have to say the, that the party will be back in 10 years' time. It might be in a different form. It might be with a different leader. I'm not a big uh, proponent of this president for life stuff. You know, things change. Uh, it might be, hopefully, with a more accommodating worldview. But I think in some respects, if we want change in China, I, I would say slowly, if it comes quickly, if the party does collapse, that would be an incredibly violent event. Um, so uh, on balance, I think, yes, we'll be, we'll be back here in 10 years, and I hope your podcast will be as well. No, well, there's nothing I can dispute on the final point there. Uh, but on the uh, larger question, the stressors on uh, the PRC are clearly growing, uh, and growing maybe in a way that we've not seen in a long time. However, from a policy perspective, I would say that it would be imprudent to predicate uh, American or allied policy decisions based on the CCP not existing in 10 years. Because as Richard has said, its track record and its resilience has proven greater than many, uh, if not just Gordon Chang, have anticipated. So prudent policy needs to place its bet on not uh, the demise of the CCP, but how to mellow, how to deter, how to limit, and in some ways how to roll back the more aggressive facets of its policy. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having us on. That was Richard McGregor and Charles Edel. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World and the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Background research was by Julia Bergen. Our interns with the most are Noah Yim and Gil Ricky. Our theme tune is from Susie Wilkins and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now. <laughs>